Hey fam, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with a great episode with two phenomenal human beings. My guests today are Luke Nelson and Nate Bender, trail runners and environmental advocates here to discuss the intersection of trail running and climate action. Luke is based in Pocatello, Idaho. He's a pro trail runner for Patagonia. He's a father of three. He's the race director of the Scout Mountains Ultra, and he's a physician's assistant. Busy guy. Nate is based in Montana. He's a trail runner, an ambassador for Protect Our Winters, and one of the driving forces behind Footprints Running, working with Dakota Jones to put on camps and generally develop a new generation of leaders in conservation and environmental advocacy. Together, Luke and Nate tackled the snowman race in Bhutan, a grueling high-altitude stage race totaling 126 miles. That is 203 kilometers over five days in Bhutan. As you'll hear, the race was the vision of His Majesty, the King of Bhutan, if you can believe that, with the goal of bringing attention to the effects of climate change in the country and in the high Himalaya in general. Luke and Nate both returned from the race deeply moved by the experience and in independent conversations with each of them, it became obvious that we needed to get the guys on the show to bring this important topic to the forefront of the international conversation among the trail running community. This is one of my favorite episodes in a while, very different from what we typically do, but I trust you'll find value in the conversation. Stick around to the end. We make an announcement about a partnership between Free Trail and Footprints that we'd love for you to get involved with. And we end the interview with a new closing question I'm experimenting with that's maybe my favorite part of the whole episode. As always, a big thank you to Speedland, our presenting sponsor and the supporter of everything that we do at Free Trail, the boutique startup trail equipment brand from Portland, Oregon, started by co-founders Dave Dombrow and Kevin Fallon, two footwear industry titans who wanted to bring a new vision and innovation to the trail category. Speedland are the makers of the new GS Tan the maximal cushion trail shoe built to go the distance, double P-backs midsole, double BOA fit system, Michelin outsole. It really is the complete package. I personally helped refine the product through the design and prototyping process and couldn't be more proud of the finished product. Pre-order your pair now. Visit runspeedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off. Finally, if you enjoy what we do at FREETRAIL, consider joining FREETRAIL Pro, the global community for passionate trail runners around the world. Join more than 500 people in the Free Trail Slack workspace get access to our training plans, our member-only podcast, rest day, our weekly office hour Zoom call where we answer questions from the community. This week we're hosting Shannon O'Grady from Gnarly Nutrition where we'll talk about off-season nutrition considerations and a lot more perks. Membership is only $10 a month or $96 a year and there is a free trial so come give it a shot. Finally, if you're in the market for trail running coaching, check out Free Trail Experts, where we've got some great coaches waiting to help you take your game to the next level. Link in the show notes. Okay, on with the show. Hope you enjoy this awesome chat with Luke Nelson and Nate Bender. Luke Nelson, Nate Bender. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
Dylan, it's a pleasure. Luke, as always. Indeed. <laughs> we'll get uh, around to talking about your guys' personal relationship here in a second. And it's so fun to have you both on the show at the same time to pull back the curtain a little bit. Luke and I were texting about setting up a podcast for a long time. And then I happened to have what felt like a serendipitous conversation with Nate as we were confirming the timing of our podcast between me and Luke. And so we figured we might as well just make it a trifecta. And I'm very glad to have you both here. And I feel like we should just dive right in. But first, I always like to set the table for the audience just so we're all operating from the same foundation. And the theme of today's podcast is the intersection of trail running and climate action, more or less. You two are very much reside at this intersection. So like I said, I'm very glad to have you both on the show. So to start, I'd love if you'd both provide just a one or two minute intro of yourselves for the audience and in providing that quick personal story, maybe where your interest for conservation environmentalism was born as well. Maybe Nate, we'll start with you. Okay, um, let's just jump right into it. Um, yeah, um, so I am the marketing director uh, with Footprints. I work with Dakota Jones on that nonprofit, and we like to call ourselves a, an incubator for climate action. We work with people with climate action ideas and try and help them bring those ideas to life with uh, surrounding them with community and mentorship and um, connections. Um, and that journey for me, I mean, I grew up in Western Montana. I grew up in a pretty outdoorsy family and I wasn't a runner as a kid, but I grew up in the mountains more or less. And, uh, and that really set the stage for um, being a conservationist and being interested in climate action. And then, and then I really got into it as I was studying marketing um, as an undergrad and got exposed to ideas like you know, sustainability and triple bottom line and sustainable business practices and all of that kind of stuff really set the hook for, for me. And it was that light bulb moment of like, man, that is what I want to do with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a circuitous journey to, to get into like finding my niche from there. And, and that's a whole nother long story, but um, I ended up going back to grad school. Um, I got a master's degree in resource conservation, which is like the, the human side of of, um, you know, understanding how we interact with the environment, um, and finishing up another master's degree in business analytics right now. So like trying to slowly work, work a couple different, uh, couple different angles of the conservation. So the, the double master's degree, we were just talking about how Luke is the overachiever. I didn't know how much of an overachiever you were. <laughs> <Nate>. so, <laughs> thank you for that intro. Luke, can you do the same for the big, audience? Luke leaves some big footprints to fill. <laughs> I don't know if I can quite, yeah, no. <laughs> I can try to follow Nate. That's mm-hmm. a, uh, like I say, I would say a big footstep as well. Um, so I'm a long time lover of endurance uh, shenanigans, uh, fortunate to grow up in the mountains and found running, you know, when I was about 25. So coming on close to 20 years now, um, after I had kind of well-established myself in running, I, I, I came across a, an experience in, in the Bears Ears area uh, in Southern Utah, uh, where I had a profound interaction with the environment on a run I was doing. And that preceded um, some of the big changes around the Bears Ears Monument 
and the the work towards that. Um, and to be totally honest, the thing that really pushed me deep into conservation work uh, was the experience through the lens of endurance combined with kids. Uh, I have three kids um, and that perspective of what am I teaching them? What am I showing them to, to protect what's important and what am I, what legacy am I leaving for them? Um, that really lit a fire to, to go deep in, into advocacy work where at this point I would say that the, the advocacy activism that I do is as involved and important as the running that I do or the other things that I balance in life. Wow. Nate, I'd love to pull the string that you just set for us in your personal introduction, because it's something that I find interesting myself. Of course, this conversation, like I said, is sort of the intersection of sport and planet, but also another important thing is the intersection of business and planet. You used the term triple bottom line. I'm not even sure what that means. So maybe you can provide a, a definition of that and maybe anything else that you've learned through your education as to how business, what role business plays in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, a traditional way of looking at business is like the like preeminence of profit above everything else. Like, like the purpose of business is, is to make money. Um, but triple bottom line thinking is more, the triple bottom line is just people, planet, and profit or, or you know, bottom line. Um, so it's, it's your success as a business is not just profit, but it's, it's how the impacts you're having socially on, on people the impacts you're having on the planet, which is, and then the impacts like economically, like you need to make money to be in business, to continue. So it's, it's, it's putting all of those three on a level playing field when you're thinking about your, uh, your foundation as a business. Um, And so when you see companies like Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's and their, their B corporations, the stand for benefit corporations, that is a, a legal business structure designed to like legally put these concepts of prioritizing people, planet and profit, um, like into the, the, the legal structure of a business mm-hmm. versus just kind of being this like nice to have add on. Yeah. Like a marketing pitch yeah. effectively. Yeah. Cause yeah, there's probably a lot of businesses that you could point to out there who use, I mean, there's this term now greenwashing, right? Who use the word sustainability liberally, but who don't actually follow through with their promises. But when you have something like 1% for the planet or B corporation status, you're then legally obligated to follow through on those obligations. So interesting. Maybe that's something we can come back around to talking a little bit more about. I'd love to also hear from both of you as people who are close to this conversation, though, I don't think either of you are sort of climate scientists. I get a feeling that you understand what's happening currently. And and I'd love to get a glimpse into the emotional disposition each of you has when you think about the planet and the future. Is it a sense of urgency? Is it fear? Is it depression? Is it hope in some cases? I'm sure you probably fluctuate between a lot of those emotions, but maybe Luke, we'll start with you sort of what are your feelings about this subject right now? And like kind of just the general state of the world and the future we're heading into. Yeah, that um, 
I think you're pretty accurate with how that fluctuates. Um, I would say that I'm generally recklessly optimistic uh, about things. And I, I like to believe that that we can pull it together and as, as a community and humanity that we can turn the ship. Um, but the, the more time I've spent in the work, uh, it tends to make you a bit jaded and maybe pessimistic about what our real chances are. Um, regardless, that doesn't deter me from putting every, all my cards on the table and doing everything that I can, uh, and continuing to, to push. But, uh, there's, there's urgency uh, bordering on emergency that, that I feel for sure. Mm. Nate, do you want to add anything to that? I think we have no choice, but, but to be optimistic. Like, yeah, it, it absolutely bounces around for me between feelings of despair and feelings of emergency and grief. Um, but at this point, like, it's really clear that we're not going to mobilize any more action or get any more people involved in taking steps to, to care for the climate uh, and for the well-being of people by hammering home grief and, and pessimism. And it's just like, it just doesn't work. It's very clear. It yeah. does not work. Yeah. And so, and so it's like, okay, if that doesn't work and, and hope like, like framing messaging or framing your thinking around hope and optimism does work, then I'd be foolish not to try and at least start from there. Yeah. And I guess just, I didn't think we would talk a lot about business in this conversation, but now my gears are turning in my head because not only is there a lot of, like there's, there's, there's opportunity in the solutions inherent in fighting this problem that are exciting to capitalists. And, you know, oftentimes that's what's the incentive that drives human behavior. And actually, while we're on this subject, this is just popping into my head too. Luke, you've worked with Patagonia for a long time. And as somebody who's had proximity to that business, which at its core is like the corporate association with sustainability and with climate activism. Recently, Yvonne Chouinard divested his ownership of the company and sort of put it in a trust. And maybe you could provide some clarity as to what actually happened there. And maybe any other perspective you can provide as a Patagonia athlete slash ambassador, what it's like to work with a brand who does put their money where their mouth is. First and foremost, I'm grateful for that opportunity. Um, the, the work with Patagonia is as true and as real as it can be. Um, when Yvonne made the decision recently to essentially turn the business to the planet, um, and, and you nailed the the structure there where it's set into a trust and there's a couple of layers, but, but what that really means is that the, all of the profits of the business will be going towards conserving the planet and, and saving this place we live. Um, and how much, how much more to the point could it be when, when their whole goal is to create 
work and and opportunity for nonprofit organizations for grassroots organizations and to put that money right back into the planet and yes it's still a business and there could be some maybe critique of well they're still creating products and and every single person at Patagonia is tasked with top line item of your job is to save our planet so if you're the person in charge of materials your job is to find materials that uh, do the least harm or are pulling carbon out of the environment or are regenerative. Um, if you're a designer, how do you reduce waste in your designs? How do you use these materials that are minimally impactful? How do you make stuff that lasts? So we need less. Um, the, all, everything top down is, is focused on that. And it's really awesome as an, as an athlete involved with that to also let my athletic endeavors be directly involved with that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's contract season and ultra running and we see all of these shufflings around. Um, maybe those are based off of, for a lot of companies, race results and uh, social media reach. And when I have a review with, with my team at Patagonia, it's, well, what's your activism? What are you doing? What are your goals? Uh, that's top line. Um, yeah. You still got to run and do cool things, but but you get to do that with a different lens and a different perspective, um, which is, I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. Wow. That is so interesting that they prioritize the activity and the actions that you take in your community and against the mission that their brand exists to perpetuate in the world. And you're measured against that, not necessarily the race results. So incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, wow. So cool. Um, so, you know, we've sort of been talking about this intersection of business and environmentalism, and, you know, now we're just glancing on the the sport topic. And I think maybe this would be an interesting jumping off point to get around to sort of the genesis of the original idea of having this conversation, which is a race that you guys recently did in Bhutan before we get to the snowman race. I'd love if you would each kind of provide an example of an instance where you kind of had to make a choice between athletic goals and sustainability values. If there's anything there that you guys would like to expand on, I'm sure the audience would love to hear. That's, that's an interesting question, Dylan. I think that um, because my involvement with Patagonia in particular has been so long running that um, when I build my calendar, it's around goals that have an association with activism. Um, So I don't know that there is, um, necessarily things that I'm giving up to, to accomplish those, but that's what my focus is. Uh, and so I'm looking at, you know, what, what's my impact going to be with travel? What's my impact going to be at an event, balancing those things out of what the, um, the gain loss or the risk benefit of doing those things from, from an activism standpoint. Um, and, and of course, the the armchair quarterbacks are going to come out and say, well, you're traveling, you're increasing your footprint. And, and the reality is, yeah, I am doing some of those things. Um, but the impact that can be made by traveling to an event and interacting with the community or learning from uh, what a country across the globe is doing and then bringing that back to my community can be much larger than what that uh, carbon offset might be. Nate, anything there that you want to expand on just about where you, the the mission that you carry as a human being into the world, that being someone that has a positive impact on the planet as a whole, 
where that is maybe come into confrontation with your athletic goals or maybe where they've meshed as Luke just provided an example? Yeah, I guess I wouldn't really think of it as, as any kind of confrontation, especially because I'm, I'm no professional athlete. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not on that level. You know, I don't have any sponsors or anything, any expectations beyond whatever I put on myself. I think how I would answer the question is more about this journey of um, having a desire to use these experiences that I've had in running or in the mountains for something more than just myself to, cause it, these things like many people have talked about can, can feel selfish, you know, like all the training time leading up to whatever it is that you want to do. And maybe even your experience out, out, whatever it is, running a race or doing a, an FKT or doing some, something up in the mountains um, can just kind of feel about yourself. And, but at the same time, you know, running and traveling around in the mountains in an endurance kind of focus has given me some of the most meaningful things in life, like direction in life, friends. And so it's this incredibly meaningful thing and fulfilling thing. And, and so it's been to me, this journey of how do I take those, that meaningfulness and that fulfillment and make it about more than just myself and, and really, um, yeah, try and put those those feelings to uh, to greater work. Beautiful answers. Thank you guys both. So the main point of our podcast today is to talk about something that you both tackled together a few months ago, that being the snowman race in Bhutan, which you did back in October of 2022. Luke, I know this was many years in the making for you. So maybe first, if you could educate the audience about what the race is and how it fits into the broader conversation we're having around environmental advocacy. Sure. Um, 2018, I got an email explaining that the king of Bhutan for his birthday wanted to hold an event in his country to bring trail runners there to experience firsthand the impacts of climate change uh, in Bhutan. Uh, and I got that email and I was like, hold on, the king for his birthday wants to have trail runners come to Bhutan. Awesome. <laughs> How do I sign up? Um, I went through the application process and in 2018, there was a group of runners selected, um, for a targeted race in 2020. Uh, we all know what happened then, uh, the world fell apart, uh, and travel stopped and it got delayed to 2021, and then it got delayed to 2022. Um, but in October 2022, a group of 19 international athletes and nine Bhutanese athletes gathered in Bhutan to, to tackle a, a really difficult running race uh, with an objective of not to necessarily see who could run the, the fastest or the best, but to have a firsthand experience of climate change in the country. So the purpose of the race seemed less about competition and more about creating a platform from which you could start a larger conversation about climate change generally, but also specifically about what's happening in Bhutan. Nate, you just talked about how you are inspired to make your running about more than just you. So maybe you could talk about the feeling of mission attached with your participation in the event? 
I mean, it, it felt like one of the first things in life where I had an opportunity to, to um, like to pitch myself for it. And I felt completely uh, competent. It's like, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, the imposter syndrome is, is creeping up on this one. It was like, no, I think I have the running bona fides and the intellectual bona fides. And this is a perfect fit. This is amazing. Uh, in fact, as a, as a funny story, I got a text from Luke at, it was like end of July of that year. And it was, it just, it was like two sentences, like, Hey, what are you doing in October? Do you want to go to Bhutan for her race? <laughs> like, yes, yeah. but also tell me more. <laughs> you know? Not like, Hey, you, do you want to go for a run on Saturday? It's like, Hey, you want to go to Bhutan in October? Yeah. <laughs> Casual. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, it just, it felt like this perfect opportunity to mix um, the, these fulfilling experiences in the mountains and to use those as a lens to talk about things that I feel very strongly about around um, mitigating climate change and, and climate action. Yeah. yeah. It strikes me that then for participants, there's kind of a feeling of responsibility that comes along with being there. That's probably part of the selection process. Luke, do you want to kind of talk about that feeling of responsibility and how you thought about ways in which you could do justice to your participation? Incredible responsibility. Um, Going into it, I felt like I had a grasp of how significant of a responsibility that would be. but promptly upon arrival and interacting with some of the government officials we did, uh, it was that I believe the first evening, maybe the second evening that we were in Bhutan, we had dinner with the former prime minister of the country. And he tasked us with being messengers and ambassadors for Bhutan. That was our assignment. And, and to have that from day one, before we're even in the mountains, just by arriving in the country and having committed to get to that point, mm. put a, a pretty significant weight on the shoulders. And, and certainly the, the group of people that were selected is this wide range of really incredibly resume runners, mm. um, but also people who had some work in activism and had some levers to pull. And so as I was approaching it, I was like, well, how can I get the word out about this and share this story? And, you know, I put together lists of different things that I was working on with writing and with photography via social media podcasts of how we can get this out and share the messages that we, and stories that we experienced while we were in Bhutan. So this is fascinating, right? You just said that it was the idea of his majesty, the king, of Bhutan. You also mentioned interfacing with the prime minister, I think it was that you said, and it opens up a conversation that I'd love to have about kind of the cultural prevalence of this conversation. I read that Bhutan is the only carbon negative country in the world. I think that's right. And yeah. so uh, maybe well, if, sorry, not, not only they, they were the first, they were the first. Yeah, I think there's two. Yeah. Okay. And, and they're by far like as far as population, they're, they're by far the largest population. There's a lot, there's a few other like relatively small, you know, uh, countries that are also negative. So to whoever wants to tackle it, where do politics and culture intersect with this conversation? And maybe if there's any takeaways that you had from interacting with the Bhutanese people and with the people in the political apparatus there 
that inspired you in how we might be able to take more action here in our own home country? I'll take a stab. Please. <laughs> um, you know, even after being there, I don't know how qualified I feel to speak to like a, a deep understanding of the Buddhist religion or of, of their political workings. But as I was kind of preparing for the podcast and as I was thinking about my big takeaways from this trip, now that there's been some time to digest the whole experience, what comes to mind to me is, is this idea of, of like paradigms of thinking and, and systems thinking. And so we think about like carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions are, are products of human systems. Like we're, we're moving people around, we're creating things, we're creating energy, like all, all these things, right, that produce emissions. And those all come out of a, a certain way of thinking about how we want to structure our lives or structure our society. Um, and there's this idea in like systems thinking, which is the idea of like thinking about human and natural systems as these, these complex evolving um, systems that like the most effective place to intervene in a system is at the level of paradigms. And a paradigm is like, what mindset do, do we bring to a system? How do we approach the system to begin with? And when I think about Bhutan, they are approaching this system of like, how do we run our country? How do we do these things that generate emissions? How do we develop from a, a different paradigm than a lot of the world? And they're coming at it in terms of, you know, they have this idea of measuring gross national happiness rather than GDP or gross national, gross, what is it? Or GDP, yeah. gross domestic product. Yeah. They have constitutional protections built in relating to the amount of the country that has to be under forest cover, which relates to um, how much carbon um, the forests can absorb and contributes to them being a carbon negative country. Like they're the only country in the world that has a constitutional protection on forest cover. And so that kind of thinking is incredibly powerful because it's at like the very upstream end of how we think about systems that produce emissions. Mm. Um, and we saw that with, with the leadership. I mean, it's like we went to this country it's like, it's, it's like as if you came to the United States for, say, a, a trail run that's based around climate action, and you're meeting cabinet-level officials who not only know what you're doing, but like know the intimate details of the race, and you also meet the king and queen of the United States, if we had a king and queen, <laughs> yeah. and the former prime minister, and the current prime minister, and all of these different officials who are all on the same page as far as how they approach this mixture of, of development and conservation at scale. Um, yeah. Wow. Does that that's, help answer? That's fascinating. It does actually like profoundly, but it makes me wonder then is it, does it feel like it's a top down thing or is it a bottom up type thing? Right. Because like when we think about, what needs to be done and how we 
go from systems thinking to paradigm thinking, if I'm using your vocabulary appropriately here. Is it something where we need the president in this case to mandate forest cover? Or is it a situation where the Bhutanese people are operating from this paradigm where they value their happiness and the health of their environment more than they value their GDP? I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely a both, a both and mm-hmm. type of question. And there's, there's no doubt that you need both. There's also no doubt that we are, we're shaped by the systems that we live in, by the cultures that we live in. And so big systemic choices or like big top-down leadership choices can really um, like frame frame the playing field for, for what's available for bottom-up action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how I would think. Awesome. So let's get to more specifics here just so the audience is operating from the same understanding, not assuming they know what the snowman race is. Maybe Luke, you could add some color, any stats about the event that you could share. And I think another thing that I'd love to understand a little bit more is kind of the mix between foreign runners like yourselves and Bhutanese athletes and maybe the interaction you all had out in the Himalaya. Yeah, for sure. So let's first talk about arrival. We got to the country, uh, the 19 international athletes gathered actually in Thailand. Um, and then we all were on one flight from Bangkok to, uh, Bhutan, uh, total side note, amazing thing. We got on the airline, Druk air, and you get the little magazine in the backseat front, front page snowman race talking about us showing up to do this race. Awesome. I saw you um, post a photo of that on your Instagram. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting on the plane, like flipping through the magazine and the guy sitting next to me is a businessman from Singapore. And he's like, Oh, what's this about? And I was like, Oh, well, like 19 people here, are here to do this race. And, uh, really cool to be able to share with him. Um, and we get off the airplane and we immediately are united with the Bhutanese runners and some of the Bhutanese officials that are helping coordinate things. And from that moment, leading up to the race, through the race, and following race, the athlete contingent was one contingent. Uh, we were doing things all together. We were having meals together. We were having cultural experiences together. Um, so that integration was awesome because from day one, we were learning from them as guests in their country about life as a runner, life as an athlete, what they do for work, and, and getting that deeper experience right from the get-go. The race itself, um, 126 miles, uh, set over five days, um, 34,000 feet of ascent and 34,000 uh, plus of descent. A uh, lot of ultra runners out there will think, well, why does that take five days? Um, well, there was an extra piece of math that came into there and ended up being pretty dramatic, and that was the altitude. So starting elevation was uh, just barely under 10,000 feet. Uh, high point was just a skosh under 18,000 feet. And the vast majority of the race was spent at or over 14,000 feet. Um, and turns out that running above 14,000 feet sometimes looks a lot like walking. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's moving fast, right? Yeah, so can confirm. It, it, makes, yeah. it makes hard rock look low, basically, yeah. 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 When like the average elevation is handies, 
you know, um, <laughs> the other piece of it is this is the race is occurring in October. We caught the very last of the monsoon. Uh, so heavy, heavy rain leading up until the morning of the start of the race, uh, which equated to very deep mud, uh, some snow and some of the most difficult trail footing conditions that I've ever experienced. And I've experienced some pretty tough conditions out there. Uh, the other thing about the snowman race is it's held on this snowman trek route. This is not buffed out trails in Marin. This is not, you know, what we would expect uh, a trail running race to be held on. This is a, a working route, uh, primarily animal traffic in and out of these high mountain communities, horses, yaks. And so it is rugged. Uh, I'll give a shout out to Bighorn Runners. If you know Bighorn on a mud year uh, where they've had the pack animals in there, it's, it's just brutal. Um, and I think out of all of the mileage, maybe maybe 15 miles, Nate, would have been flat-ish. Everything else could have easily uh, taken out an ankle or, or beyond um, at any other moment. If you take out the if you take out the last day when we were like running into town, that those flat miles goes down to like five, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a vague memory of was it Tim Olson and Anna Frost who did a project on the route many years ago? Yeah, oh. yeah they they did an FKT on the route, um, and uh, I believe there's a short film. At the very least, there's some epic stories about uh, an event gone uh, pretty wild out there. I mean, the, the reality is, is it's, it's very remote. It's probably the ro most remote that I've been on earth. Um, our mm. second and third and fourth nights, the second, third, primarily, um, the, the group that went in took seven days on horses to get to the night stop mm -hmm. seven days to get back out afterwards. So they spent 14, well, 16 days on, on route to deal with us to go through for a night. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the lift of the logistics of this race is, is totally next level from anything I've been involved with. Yeah. What was it like on a personal level interacting with the individuals in these high mountain communities as you pass through? I'm sure there's a tension internally about being in their home and wanting to be on your best behavior, but also to have a human connection, especially when you're there with this deeper motivation in mind. Any anecdotes you want to share about interacting with the Bhutanese people? So many. Uh, it, and and I, I want Nate to share too. I don't want to just be the only Please. one here. But, yeah. um, with the Bhutanese in the mountains and everywhere in the country, but particularly in the mountains were so kind to us and so generous. Um, sticking out in my mind is, is partway through day two, uh, around 14,000 feet, second climb of the day. Uh, I was running um, with Gabe Joyez from Lander and we'd come up this big climb, we'd come around a corner and there are two girls sitting there with a tray and a bunch of mango juices and some crackers and they were waiting for us. And, and, and I mean, I, I get emotionally thinking about it now of, of them sitting in this high exposed mountain environment, just there to help bolster our 
energy and to push us along and to be there supporting us. Um, and, and time and time again, things like that happened. The trail culture even extends to the Himalaya and the Bhutanese people. Amazing. Oh. Nate, do you have anything you want to add there? I, I loved those mango juices. Throughout. <laughs> those, those were great, man. Those really, yeah, yeah those could be a, a gel substitute for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the one of the poignant moments that comes to mind for me was um, day three, and we're passing this this high, like one of the highest continuously um, – um, lived in communities in the world, I think is this community called Lunana, um, around 16,000 feet. Um, there was this elderly gentleman standing, you know, maybe a hundred yards after, after the community with this, this big wide basket with this, this nice linen in it. And it just held all these cut apple slices. Yeah. And I don't know if he spoke any English. Um, and, you know, we, we pick up a, a couple of phrases of, um, of Zonka, which is, um, the national language. And so you could just say like, Kadinche, just like, thank you. <laughs> and it's just like a simple, simple phrase and a big smile. And, and the fact that, and, you, and you're staring up at the Eastern Himalayas at the head of the Valley there. And it just feels like simultaneously this, incredibly surreal moment because it's so different than anything I'd ever experienced. And yet it's human kindness is the world over, Mm -hmm. you know? Now I want to ask another thing, Nate, you mentioned earlier Buddhism. And now this is sort of coming into my head of like, you know, we're talking about the intersection of, sport and planet, business and planet. And so now we might as well talk about religion and its connection with humans. I mean, I've never been to Bhutan. I don't know that much about Buddhism in general, but I wonder, you know, especially, yeah, in this conversation around politics too, and the people and what they value in their societies, if there's anything there that you were exposed to with the individuals who are practicing Buddhists or who are in communities where that's an important thing. And if there was anything that you gleaned from interacting with those people that you think is interesting. Gosh, I I wish I knew more about Buddhism. I, I feel very unqualified to really to speak on it at depth. What comes to mind though, for me is and maybe it's just because it's so different from from like the Western United States, where something that's 200 years old is old. You know, when you go to Bhutan and you're seeing temples that were built in the 8th century or the 10th century and, and still preserved and cared for. And I, I wonder about what that, you know, reverence for for tradition and reverence for um, for that kind of continuity, um, maybe that helps shape, um, an understanding of, you know, how we need to take care of the world that we live in mm. over the long Very interesting. Thank you for that. Luke, is there anything there that you would maybe want to expand on 
I, oh. Again, I don't want to put you guys in weird, no. <laughs> weird positions. So, I, I, like Nate, yeah. I'd say that I'm pretty unqualified to speak yeah. on, on Buddhism itself. But yeah. what, but what I am very, I feel like qualified to speak on is those experiences that I had yeah. with um, Buddhist leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, they created opportunities for us to experience uh, temples. Um, the Tiger's Nest Temple is one of the most beautiful places on. Earth, you also the, posted a photo of that on your Instagram and it looks yeah, incredible. Uh, I mean, it's built on the side of a 500 foot cliff. Um, and we sat and were offered a, a time to meditate with the, uh, abbot of the monastery. Uh, and we had that type of experience multiple times, lighting butter lamps, uh, as an offering for our, our safe passage through the mountains. But the most powerful of those experiences occurred, um, a day or two before the start of the race, um, we were in Gaza, which is where the start of the race was. And we had visited the Gaza Zong, the fortress and monastery there. And we were invited into the abbot's kind of private chamber. And he, he offered us tea and cookies and then teachings. And, and one of the things that, that just reshaped my experience was his request for us runners as we traveled through these high mountains was to open our hearts to the people, to the trees, to the rivers, to the rocks, and let that teach us. And, and as trail runners, that would be our church, right? That's our place. That's our sacred place. And, and if we're willing to open ourselves up to those environments, the connection that we create helps us to better understand them, to feel them, um, and and then to carry that experience with us back to our communities to to light that fire elsewhere. Wow, I'm so glad I asked that question, even though it was clumsy and as three <laughs> three dudes who are not experts on <laughs> Buddhism or religion in general. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because oftentimes religion is where we derive meaning or where a lot of people in the world derive meaning. But for a lot of us, we get that same feeling from being outside, from doing our athletic craft of just challenging ourselves and seeing what's on the other side. And so there's a parallel there that I'm glad you guys were able to sort of shine some light on. So back to the race itself and sort of the core of our conversation I'd love to understand a little bit more about what you saw out there, because I think part of the purpose of the event is to kind of expose you firsthand to some of the effects of climate change in the country and specifically in these high mountains. Maybe Luke, you can start with this one. You want to just provide a a glimpse into what you experienced and sort of what the consequences there are on the ground. Absolutely. I would say that it, it still was a race right? There, there was a go and there, there was a whole lot of personal digging physically to cover that ground as, as efficiently and as quickly as possible. And one thing that that offers us, particularly in the ultra type events is the endurance strips away ego and allows you to be far more receptive to, to what's happening around you. Um, both from kind of an energy standpoint and from 
an observation standpoint. And, and, and we were able to see firsthand as we were in the high mountains, empty moraine where glacier recently had been and recession had rapidly occurred. Uh, we were able to interact with people in, in the Lunana area and even downstream that were at constant risk from glacier burst out glacier lake outburst floods gloffs which are an event that happens when a glacier rapidly melts water pools up on the ice and the rock that's not necessarily nature created to hold water and at some point that breaks way and creates these catastrophic flooding events uh where where people had lost close families we talked to to, to these individuals who had lost family members who had lost whole communities and and they they live kind of in in some ways in constant fear of these things that they're real they're tangible they're happening and and to be able to essentially share tea with them and 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 be in that environment was life altering mm -hmm. i've never heard the term gloffs before so again it's there's so many of these strange and unprecedented risks associated with what's happening right now. Nate, I'd love to hear anything that you took away or that was particularly impactful that you saw on the trail. And one of the things that you said before we pressed record is like thinking about what you saw and what you experienced and how you can take that experience back with you to your community and to your life in general. And so that experience is not forgotten and wasn't in vain, but that you can perpetuate that mission further. Is there anything there that you can expand on? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Luke said it really well. And, um, yeah, I mean, what comes to mind for me is, is how do we, how do we act as effective messengers for, for an event like this, or for an experience like this? Because unfortunately, you know, human psychology is just not set up to care about distant impacts. Like as much as we want to be the better people, it, it's just like a cold hard fact of human psychology that we are like if distant if something is is distant for us as a species in terms of like time or distance or to other cultures, like we just don't care as yeah. much. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of in in general. And so for me. I think it's how do we take these far off impacts in a place that's for a lot of this of our audience here, it's probably in the like the United States and Canada um, or in Europe. How do we take from take the impact from a far off place like Bhutan and make them more tangible, more localized to um, to 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 someone living? Let's just say let's just say in the Western United States and. Um, or Western Canada. And I think about, you know, one of the, the runners from Bhutan, um, this great lady named Karma Youngden, um, lost a family member last year to this catastrophic mudslide up in, um, up in the mountains of Bhutan and ran like 12 hours back to civilization to, to um, let everyone else know what had happened and, and to warn other people. It was very uh, yeah, traumatic experience. Um, and I think about the connection of a story like that to 
say the catastrophic flooding in British Columbia last fall, mm-hmm. like province-wide flooding with huge impacts or the flooding in Southwest Montana where I live or kind of close to where I live, like down the Yellowstone area. Um, and it's not exactly clear like how much climate change exacerbated those kinds of events or those particular events, but climate change is making weather more variable. It's, it's adding more power to, to storms of all kinds. And I think it's, it's like, can, can we connect these stories that are, that are the same, right? Whether you're in Bhutan or whether you're in Montana or BC, because these impacts are not some, some far off thing that's Mm -hmm. happening to somewhere else in the world. It's happening everywhere. And, um, I think, I think that is where we can be successful and effective messengers is making those connections and making those stories, um, tangible and, and real and showing that, um, yeah, it's like the, the consequence of, of not doing anything about climate change is not some, uh, not some like cost less thing. It's, it's happening right now. It has cost both in terms of money and in terms of real human suffering. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Best Day Brewing, the non-alcoholic option I will be reaching for during dry January and the rest of 2023. If you're like me, you love a cold beer with friends after a long run or after a hard day at work. And if you're also like me, you realize that alcohol, even in small quantities, takes a toll on your physical and psychological energy, and that taking a break can help take your game to the next level. I am convinced that my six weeks off the booze before Hard Rock and 2021 was a big reason why I felt so good during that training block and so good on race day. And I just discovered Best Day Brewing while I was at my cousin's wedding in Sacramento, and it it has become my favorite non-alcoholic beer, and it is brewed for doers like you and me. Finally, a full flavor, full body, full aroma craft beer without the alcohol to slow us down. I know you guys are going to love this product, so I wanted to challenge you. The thousands of free trail listeners out there, join me for dry January, abstaining from alcohol for the first month of the year to start 2023 on the right foot together. I've been doing dry January for almost a decade and best day will be my go-to beverage after a hard training session when I'm out socializing or chilling at home with my wife, my favorite best day is the west coast ipa but they also make a kolsch and a hazy ipa which are equally delicious and refreshing check them out at bestdaybrewing.com use code dry20 for 20 percent off you can also use dry ship for free shipping and go follow them on instagram at bestdaybrewing america's next big beer company i am convinced Stay dry, stay happy with me this January. Tag me in your best day Instagram stories and I will be sure to reshare. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition, the first brand to ever believe in free trail. So if you are surprised and happy that we still exist, well, we are too. And much of that is thanks to Gnarly Nutrition. Gnarly has a ridiculously robust offering of products to power your training and recovery. And today I want to tell you about the Gnarly Protein Products to augment and improve your post-run routine and to help kickstart your recovery for the next training session. Gnarly Vegan and Gnarly Wave provide two 
two high quality options for omnivorous and plant-based athletes alike. One of the great things I did in 2022 was start having a recovery shake after hard workouts and long runs, something that's nutrition 101 and certainly not rocket science, but even old dogs can learn new tricks, including myself. I started having a protein shake, mixing gnarly whey with almond milk immediately after hard training sessions and definitely noticed an improvement in my recovery. Combine that with the BCAAs before exercise and you are living the high performance nutrition lifestyle. Check out Gnarly at gonarly.com. Use code freetrail15 for 15% off your order. Gonarly.com. Use code freetrail15. Back to the show. Well, you guys got through the race and I'd love because we can't go through each and every stage. We, we should do that sort of like when we have infinite time when we're sitting around a campfire or something like that. But one of the things that Nate said before you jumped on Luke was like, oh, Luke and I haven't even really been able to catch up about the whole event and you guys we should say <laughs> sort of like shared a hotel and a tent together for three straight weeks so you, you probably became you know uh you yeah, know, we, were, we, were, we were kind of married for three weeks <laughs> <laughs> basically yeah and as we all know like relationships forged and that suffering become really strong and so maybe with three months of perspective because we can't go through all the details of the event I mean, Nate just mentioned some of the things he brought home with him. Luke, is there something that uh, you're thinking about now, three months later, that you can't get out of your head from this experience? Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, so much. Uh, it, it's one of those things that that I I think about it basically every day, um, and and one experience another. Just just seeing Nate's beautiful face on this Zoom meeting right now makes me think of waking up to him. Uh, on the morning of day four, totally destroyed after being at altitude all day. Um, for those curious, there is an Instagram picture showing my beautiful self there in a video. But um, I mean, so many, the, the relationship essentially forged in that space with the other runners, with uh, our Bhutanese counterparts, um, the, the the community that was created around that um, it is so amazing. And, and there are parallels to the community formed at hard rock or at Western States where that's what gives me joy. Um, and, 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 and as I'm back here reflecting on, on the experience that I had, um, I'm so happy that I was able to be there and experience it and, and now have the responsibility to share about it. And there, there's a hours and hours of, of ridiculous stories of the race and mango juices or spicy food at 14,000 feet and, you know, all of the crazy things that we did. Um, but maybe the most powerful thing and, and thing that I, I cherish the very most was a, a kind of a two-part event when we were at tiger's nest, one of the monks handed Nate and I a set of prayer flags each and gave us a charge and said, these have been blessed or, or anointed or something along those lines for your and your colleagues' safety. Please deliver them to a high mountain pass. And on day 
three at just shy of 18,000 feet, I, I hung those flags thinking of my friends running, of the running community at large and humanity and thinking, well, this I'm placing as a gesture for our safety. And as I come back, I think, well, what am I doing to help create that safety? What was I doing during the event, looking out for my friends and myself? And what am I doing now for my community to, to make a difference um, so that we can be safe as a community? And, and, and that'll be a moment. I mean, you, Gabe Joyce was with me there as well. I, I wept. Um, and I get teary thinking about it now yeah. of, of how a simple gesture of hanging a flag, but thinking of the big picture really changes you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Luke. So I, I also, I also uh, hung up my flags on that same pass a solid few hours after Luke, because <laughs> much faster than I am. Uh, and then I proceeded to just puke on the way down from there. I feel like we had different, uh, sorry, different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the flags were blessed. They were anointed and you made your way safely to the finish line, which is all that matters. Good for yes. you, Nate. So Nate, we're also sort of going to be using this opportunity to make a little bit of an announcement that we're going to be working on together. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you're part of the small team behind footprints, the running camps and, you guys are doing some very cool stuff with regards to talking about, you know, bringing this conversation to the forefront of creating a new generation of leaders who can make sure that we're heading in the right direction. And it's one thing to sort of talk about this stuff on a podcast, but it's another thing altogether to, to take action. And Free Trail wants to take action. And we've been working together to identify ways in which you guys can help us and that we can help you more or less. So maybe before we start wrapping up here, if you want to just educate the audience about what we have in mind, uh, I think they'll be excited to hear. Yeah. I mean, the quick and dirty of the history is I would think about footprints as, you know, as the brainchild of, of Dakota Jones. And he started that and in 2019 as a, as an avenue for, to encourage collective climate action and move from, individual impact to encouraging more collective action. And it feels like the last couple of years, we've been uh, an event organization that has put on camps and with aspirations to, to be more holistically supporting climate action. And, and we're at that inflection point now due to a lot of, you know, like, like you say, it's like a lot of side hustle work, um, which is great. And, and a lot of neat partnerships and work. And so what we're doing with Free Trail is um, combining these, these two worlds of encouraging collective climate action and, and using this, this, uh, this shared activity community of, of trail running that we all know and love and take so much fulfillment from. Um, yeah, to, to use um, the passion of the trail running community for for collective climate action. And so um, we are going to um, be bringing in um, experts and thought leaders and also just elevate, you know, the, the people that we work with, like our mentors and our uh, alumni of our camps and other programming, um, you know, bring them into the free trail orbit in, in written pieces, maybe in the, in the podcast here or in 
in the in the Slack channel for uh, for free trial subscribers. Um, really trying to just open up more avenues for the trail running community to get involved in in this idea of climate action. And you guys are going to be hosting some fun webinars that are going to be open to the public and going to be recorded and shareable after the fact. And really, we're not doing much aside from kind of helping with the production and distribution of things. But one of the things that Dakota said that really struck a chord with me, because I've since we started this thing, I've always wanted us to have a powerful voice on this subject. But like, mm -hmm. we all don't feel qualified to talk about Buddhism. I kind of feel that way on this subject. And so just thinking about who we could enlist to really help bring this to the forefront. And one of the things that Dakota said to me was that he wants this type of material, that being information and resources about climate change and environmentalism to be as available as race reports and gear reviews. And I thought, yes, that's exactly it. And so we're very excited as Free Trail to be partnering with you guys. And you guys will be taking on a lot of the, the heavy lifting, but it'll in some ways sort of exist within the, the Free Trail orbit. And we're really excited about it. So to the listeners, stay tuned for more. And I guess, Nate, you guys just announced an Australia camp, maybe before we move to Luke, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the actual camps that you have going on this season? Yeah. Yeah. So we hold these week long camps where we pair participants with who have ideas for different types of collective climate action with a group of mentors from a variety of professional backgrounds that can help them put a strategy and a, a plan and work out questions of, you know, timing and budget and marketing and communications, you know, all the, all the nitty gritty. To, that you need to bring an idea to reality. Um, so we work together um, and spend a week together running, you know, using running as the social glue to bring everyone together. Um, but the emphasis is on developing the participants' climate action projects. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hold a camp in Colorado at the end of July. That's the camp that we've held the last two years. We'll hold, um, well, actually first, um, we're working with a group down in Australia to hold um, the first Australia camp. That'll be um, at the end of April. Um, so it, it's more obviously geared towards, towards people in Australia working yeah. on a specific issue, um, protecting um, like a, a new um, forest uh, preservation um, project down there. Um, but it's super exciting to, to work um, with other organizations like that and kind of uh, expand our model out to other places. Um, and then the third camp for the year will be in Vermont at the end of September um, in uh, working with the Craftsbury Outdoor Center. Yeah, fantastic. And I'll put links in the show notes so people who are interested in learning a little bit more can visit your website and glean that information. Luke, back to you. One of the things you mentioned at the very beginning that struck a chord with me is the fact that you're a dad, father of three and that a lot of your motivation and the work that you do is to set up your children and your kids' generation to live in a world that they that's worth living in, more or less. Can you talk about how you have these discussions with your kids and whether they're interested or not? But more, I guess, more generally, like how can our generation 
have an impact on, you know, the next generation and ensure that, um, you know, we're, we're heading in the right direction and, and any th- reflections that you have on, on fatherhood and that obligation, I think would be really interesting to hear. Yeah, that's, that's a good question, Dylan. I think that, um, our house, we, we talk about this maybe a little bit more than others, uh, because of the environmental work that I'm involved with. Um, you know, I'll go on a trip, say with protect our winners to go lobbying in DC and, you know, my, my eight-year-old son's like, well, where are you going? And why are you doing that? You know, why are you going to be gone? And, and we get to talk about, you know, what, what I'm trying to accomplish. And I'm thinking about them when they're, maybe I'm calling them after a, a meeting with a Senator and saying, oh, I met this Senator. And they're like, well, oh, Senator, cool. <laughs> um, but, but they, they get exposed to it by the action that I'm doing and the conversations we have around that. Um, another space where, where my, my kids get the opportunity to be involved firsthand is it the race that we put on at scout mountain ultras um they because my wife and i are the directors of that that means they're also employed by the race to do work (laughs) um and and some years that may mean that chloe our middle daughter is running the raffle that we use to support the environmental groups that are present at the race that are helping educate runners about the things going on in our community or our older daughter is the one that's uh doing merchandise sales. And we use that to generate funds to donate to groups like footprints. Um, and, and so by the actions we're doing and giving them opportunities to directly get involved, um, our oldest daughter is talking about going to law school to work in the activism space. And she's a sophomore in high school, you know, that to me, that's just like, ah, we're doing something right here. Um, and, and good luck to anybody that goes up against her because she can, fire a mean <laughs> argument out there. Um, <laughs> so so I, I think the, the advice that I'd have is, is, is talk the talk and walk the walk, you know, do it, show them that it's important, make it a priority for you and your family. And, and, and you can make that difference at home. And, and we know that, that what we really need is systemic change, but living that, you know, examine life at home and, and doing what we can is, is one way we stay motivated to, to make that happen. I love it, man. Talk the talk and walk the walk. Gentlemen, I gave you a prompt about a closing question that I'm experimenting with, but before we get to it, is, are there any final thoughts or calls to action for the audience that you want to leave them with before we shut it down? I have one actually, please. Um, one of our final evenings, maybe the final evening in Bhutan, we sat down with his and her majesty, the king and queen of the country. Um, and this is, I mean, what an, what an experience to be able to sit and, and have a conversation with someone. These, pe- these people are so amazing. And, and during that conversation, the king was asked why he picked trail runners. Right, of all the things, right? Why trail runners? Why are trail runners the ones that he invited to his country to be messengers? And, and his response was, was, was beautiful. It was, who better than those that depend on the land for the thing they love? And, and so if you're listening to this and you love trail running and you love that space, who better than you to be an ambassador for those wild places and to take action? Um, and, and that's a, a teaching from His Majesty that uh, I'll cherish for, for my whole life and share with everyone I can. 
Absolutely beautiful. What a great place to wrap up. Nate, is there anything, anything that you want to sort of point the audience towards? I'm so glad Luke brought that up. Yeah. That's it's such a powerful moment and, and, and takeaway from that trip. And I think that's something that we're, we're trying to bring to life with yeah. footprints. I mean, we, we see that in, in the, in the mentors that we work with, the people who volunteer with us, the people who, who come to us with ideas that, that they don't exactly know how to bring to life, but, but they know that they want to make an impact greater than themselves. Um, we see that connection to place and connection to the land and love for love for place and, and the passion in the trail running community every day. And when I think about what I want, the impact that I want footprints to have on the world, to be this organization that, that brings people together and puts an emphasis on connecting people and really building meaningful relationships among people that leads, you know, that, that, that leads to meaningful climate action. Um, it's, it's like, it starts with people, you know, it, it really does. And, um, I'm grateful to do this work with the trail running community. Fantastic. At free trail, we often say trail running will save the world. And it's usually kind of like a tongue in cheek thing, but it's, we, as we all know, it is a special group of people, right? And who better than you? I love how you said that, Luke. So in closing, gentlemen, I'm experimenting with a sort of a final closing question that we may make a theme of the podcast and uniform across the amazing guests that we have on the show. And the, question I'm experimenting with is what is one semi-profound thing that you've learned about yourself or about life in general from your participation in this amazing sport? Luke, we'll start with you. I think that um, I've thought about this question a fair bit since you posed it in the email. And um, I think that the thing that I learned the or have learned at this point, ongoing process um, about trail run or about myself through trail running is um, the beauty of difficulty. Mm. Um, we seek these challenges to help us overcome and to be better and to better ourselves. And sometimes we fail and sometimes we don't. Um, but the beauty that that gives us and the perspective it creates in our lives, um, it makes us better. And I agree, man, trail running will save the world. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Luke. Nate, shut us down here. I was so excited to actually have an answer when I saw your question to this. And to me, it was immediately small wins compounded over time. I think about the person I was in my early twenties before I really found running and the meaning and direction and fulfillment that trail running has given me in my life and how I can bring this idea of like incremental improvement over a long period of time. And I bring the idea from trail running as I'm getting ready for a race or I'm getting ready for a big adventure. 
I bring that to everything I do now. That mindset of just stacking little wins and where you can get to with a bunch of little wins over enough time is, is amazing. Gosh, that was maybe my favorite part of the whole conversation, guys. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> so, man... That was really fun, gentlemen. It's very different from the typical conversations we have on the show, which are very much usually focused on X's and O's and race results and commentary about what's happening in trail running. But what a joy it's been to sit down with each of you. I appreciate your time coming on the podcast. Thank you, Dylan. Thank you so much, Dylan and Luke. You guys are the best. That's it. Thanks so much to Nate and Luke. That was so much fun for me. Makes me want to do more episodes with multiple guests again. Make sure you stay tuned for more news on the collaboration between Free Trail and Footprints. We'd love it if you got involved in the webinars and events that we have planned. More news coming soon, so stay tuned. Visit the show notes for further reading and resources. Follow both Nate and Luke on Instagram. Check out the Snowman Race. Check out Footprints. Find all that stuff and more in the show notes. Free Trail Pro members, let me know what you think in Slack. What was your biggest takeaway? What left you inspired? Should I continue with my new closing question? Let me know in the Free Trail podcast channel in Slack. Thank you to our sponsors, Speedland, best shoes ever made. Run speedland.com. Use code FREETRAIL10 for 10% off your pre-order of my signature shoe, the GS Tam, Gnarly Nutrition, gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off the best nutrition products in the game. Finally, Best Day Brewing, bestdaybrewing.com. Use code DRY20 for 20% off. If you need some guidance in your trail journey, check out Free Trail Experts, where we've enlisted some great coaches and specialists to help make your experience in the sport even more fun, enjoyable, and successful. Link in the show notes. That's it for now. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Love you dearly. Talk soon. Bye-bye.